Well, anyway, I hope you all enjoyed that, that wonderful lunch and, uh, and the wonderful lunch conversation. I know I did. And uh, it's great to be back. It's, it's great to, to be here this afternoon. And, um, you know, those of us who are lucky enough to be invited to speak, uh, you know, we never really know uh, what is going on in the, the great mind of Tom Palmer and uh, why exactly he schedules us for what he schedules us, you know, how he helps to shape the, the topics that we discuss, as well as how he places them. But I think um, that Tom did a really good job in uh, arranging uh, my next two lectures, especially given that this afternoon we're going to be, um, in various ways, um, uh, making our way to Capitol Hill um, in preparation for our reception and our dinner this evening. Um, when we think about Congress, a lot of times we sort of shake our heads, right? Because we're dealing with a world of practical politics. And we're dealing with, uh, you know, real, and I think all of us in the room can agree, very fallible human beings um, who uh, have taken it upon themselves uh, to run for offices where they get to make the laws under which the rest of us um, are supposedly bound to live. And uh, when we think about practical politics, it, it seems like it is a very, very distant uh, you know, place from the origins of American government. Um, the American Revolution, the 1790s, the, uh, the years of, of the presidency of Thomas Jefferson, um, what a distant and in some ways alien world from where we are now. Um, and yet, I think it's sometimes most inspiring to look at the members of the founding generation, to look at the American revolutionaries, um, and to realize that they too lived in a deeply flawed world. Um, I mean, they lived in a world where it was okay for people to own one another, right? I mean, we think we have challenges and problems with liberty today. They certainly had challenges and problems with liberty back then. And as flawed as our world is, I think it's inspiring to look at how they, in a very serious, um, principled way, tried to improve their world. Did they succeed at fixing everything? Did they succeed at, at uh, creating what, you know, Jeff might call, uh, you know, libertarian land? Well, no. No, they didn't. Um, did they succeed at making their world a better one? That, I think we can say, yes, they did. And what inspires me about the American Revolution in particular is that it is a revolution for liberty, and perhaps even more remarkable, it, it becomes a war that actually yields, on balance, maybe not completely, but on balance, more liberty. And, and you know, trust me, war very infrequently brings about more liberty. War, more often than not, brings about conscription and violations of civil liberty and standing armies and debts and taxes and all the sorts of things that undermine liberty. So the American Revolution, the idea that this, this experiment, that we could roll the dice and, and have more liberty, more freedom after it than before, that was a really bold choice. And uh, I think because of the principles of the individuals involved and their commitments to those principles, um, it worked out as it did. The, the principles of the American Revolution are something that historians um, have debated for a long time and hopefully will debate for all time. But I think that there is broad consensus that, that there are sort of two constellations of ideas that were very important to the American revolutionaries. 
And those uh, two groups of ideas could probably be, be described as Lockean liberalism and classical republicanism. And Lockean liberalism was in many respects about the, the purpose of government, whereas classical republicanism focused a little bit more on the process of government. Lockean liberalism, um, of course, is, is derived from the ideas of, of John Locke and, and other similar thinkers. It's called liberalism, um, not because of modern day left-right politics, um, but instead because of its commitment to the principles of individual liberty. Classical republicanism is, is again, not a reference to modern day electoral politics. It's not Donald Trump in a toga or anything like that. Um, <laughs> It's, it's instead the insights about, about government that were passed down you know, from antiquity to the, the members of the founding generation and the lessons that they learned. Um, Lockean liberalism, of course, derives from John Locke. Um, I think John Locke is uh, an, an incredibly important historical figure. If I had to, to list you know, the, the top 10 most important people to live in the past 1,000 years, for sure, John Locke would be on my top 10 list. He might even be number one. Um, he's famous for, for, for many different reasons. Um, you know, he contributed uh, you know, many, uh, many, many works um, to the canon of liberty. Uh, maybe most famous of all is his two treatises on government. Um, he has his uh, letter on toleration, um, his essay on human understanding. Um, you know, he's, he's famous for, for, for so many different things, his contributions to the fundamental orders of South Carolina, um, and not to be left out, um, he's famous as a, as a total dead ringer for the late great actress Jessica Tandy. <laughs> uh, some of the people in the audience might not be familiar with the work of Jessica Tandy. Um, she's famous uh, for a number of reasons, uh, one being um, probably her most iconic film would be Driving Miss Daisy. She co-starred with uh, Morgan Freeman. She was this sort of uh, old Southern grand dam who uh, had this, this chauffeur who drove her around um, and uh, they developed kind of a, a special uh, friendship together. There she, there she is. <laughs> so, so John Locke. <laughs> <laughs> so John Locke is, uh, is a person who, um, you know, we really can't overstate his importance to the American revolutionaries. And uh, some, some of this, I think it just dovetails so perfectly with, with Randy's talk um, this morning. You know, Locke posits, why do we have government in the first place? I mean, that is such a great question, isn't it? It's such a great question. So many people, too many people, take for granted that we're going to have government. Locke doesn't. He says, why do we put up with this? Why do we put up with this? Why do we have government? What good does it do? What good can it do? Why was it ever invented? For, for him, there was only one reason. It was to protect individual rights. Locke posited that way back when, um, men lived in a state of nature. And, uh, you know, you could imagine living in, you know, some jungle or some caveman world, right? Before their institutions, before their society, really, before their civilization. Um, in, in some ways, it was a world not that unlike the old Outback Steakhouse slo slogan. Do you remember what it was? It was no rules, just right, right? The Lockean state of nature is no rules, just rights, just rights. You know, because our individual rights 
pre-exist the creation of any government. They are inherent in our humanity. Without our rights, we would not be functioning human beings. It would be a denial of our humanity to deny our rights to life, to liberty, to property. And, and, and Locke defines these rights in, in sort of negative terms. Sometimes philosophers will talk about negative rights versus positive rights. Negative rights are the rights you know, to be left alone. You have, you know, my right to life means I have the right not to be killed. My right to liberty means I have the right not to be enslaved or coerced. Uh, my right to property means I have the right not to have my stuff taken from me against my will. Um, positive rights, or sometimes negative rights are called liberty rights. Positive rights are called welfare rights. Those are rights claims um, that you should be provided with certain things. A right to health care, a right to uh, a living wage, a right to affordable housing, that sort of thing. Um, that's a much more modern tradition um, that's in tension with the Lockean tradition, that, that we have the right essentially to be left alone because these individual rights um, are so important, that they are so universal, um, that without them, without the right to life, obviously, we, we cease to function as individual human beings. Without the liberty to move about freely, I mean, we're designed to move about freely. We're designed with two legs. To move about freely, that is part and parcel of our humanity. We are designed to think for ourselves. That is a basic fact of, of, of human anatomy, that we are all born with one brain, that we think as individuals. So our, our right to conscience and, and free thought is, is paramount. We are all born with hands with which we can labor. And, and Locke said, you know, in the state of nature, the way that people established property rights is, is by mixing their labor with nature. It, it wasn't enough, you know, it'd be great though, if, if in the state of nature I could stand on a mountaintop and wave my arms around and say, I proclaim everything that I see, the kingdom of Rob, right? You know, that would be great, except uh, there are a lot of other people who could do that, and there wouldn't be that much meaning in that, in that property right. But, Locke said, if, if I, Rob McDonald, were to mix my labor uh, with something in the state of nature. So in the state of nature, you know, I, it's, it's great. There are no rules. Um, but, but there are certain things that you need to do in order to survive. I'm sure after a while, I would get kind of hungry. Um, they didn't have the wonderful Cato, uh, caterers in the state of nature. Um, so I'd have to fend for myself. Maybe I would mix my labor with a branch to make a spear. And maybe with that spear, I would hunt. And maybe I'd, I'd hunt a deer, right? And I'd eat the meat. Um, and I'd uh, take the skins. And with the skins of the deer, I'd try to you know, fashion some sort of shelter, some sort of tent, some sort of uh, hut. You know, that would become my property. If, if I were to try to clear a, a, a little space where I could um, you know, cultivate some crops, that would become my property because I've mixed my labor with it. That would establish the original property right and allow me then to, um, if I chose, you know, pass that on or trade that property um, to, with someone else. So, so this is, according to Locke, you know, these are the rights that we all have. We, we have them um, not because of a government, um, many people have them despite the government under which they happen to live. 
Locke says the purpose of government, if it's legitimate, is to protect those rights. I mean, it's great to, to be, you know, me in the state of nature, and I could have these things. I could have these, claim, these rights claims. I, I created this deerskin blanket. It's mine. But the problem is, in the state of nature, we might have perfect freedom. I might be able to choose to do whatever I wish, because there are no rules. But I might not have perfect security in my rights. You know? I, I might confront some terrible barbarian, like, and I know the interns will, uh, will understand what I'm saying here, like Mark, right? What if he were to confront me in the state of nature and he has a big club, although he wouldn't even need it, right? But he has a big club and he's going to take my deer skin from me. How do I feel after that? I mean, it's awful, you know? And Locke says there's, there's a solution to that. There's a way to deal with the problem of, of the barbarians who wouldn't respect my rights. What is it? What's, what's his solution? Yeah, I mean, you know, an obvious solution would be to try to, like, come up, get a bigger club than Mark, right? <laughs> but even so, I'd, I'd be afraid. So, uh, yeah, but, but maybe if I, got, um, if I got a few individuals to help me out, if I, if I found some allies who would band together with me and, and we agreed to, to work to protect each other's rights, you know, if Mark ever goes after me again, they'll be there to help me out. If, if, if someone ever, you know, challenges their rights, I'll be there to help them out. That, according to Locke, that's the origin of government. That's the, the fundamental function, the purpose of legitimate government, to protect individual rights. And yet, we understand how things happen. Sometimes we make agreements. Sometimes we, we design things to work in a certain way. But over time, there are problems that emerge. Um, the first generation might enter into that agreement in good faith and might uphold that agreement um, effectively. But what about the next generation or the generation after that, right? What if, uh, what if Paul III, there's Paul, what if Paul III were to rise up and declare himself the emperor of, of this group of people? What if Paul III were, instead of working to protect people's individual rights? What if Paul III were to arbitrarily take them away? What if he were to take people's property? What if he were to circumscribe people's liberty, especially if they challenged his authority? What if he were even to try to put people to death? What then, according to John Locke, would people in that civilization have the right to do? Yeah, um, it's important to remember that Locke is English, right? Now, uh, it's, it's wrong to generalize, but <laughs> my experience with, the English pe with English people has been very, very positive. I have found English people, and now, no, I haven't really attended many athletic events, but that aside, I've known English people to be wonderfully orderly people. Um, the English are great at, at many, many things. Um, an Englishman invented uh, cat's eyes, those little reflective uh, things that you see on the sides of roads at night, they help guide you, right? Keep you within the lines, very English thing. Um, one of their great national uh, uh, pastimes, one of the things that they excel at, uh, they call queuing. We call it standing in line. Um, but they're wonderful at queuing. In, in America, it's like the state of nature all over again when you go to a grocery store. I remember being a kid 
few people here are from Connecticut, so you're familiar with Stop and Shop. Our local Stop and Shop, I'd go with my mom when I was a kid. You know, you never know which line is gonna be the best one. She'd stand in one line, she'd have me stand in another line. You know, if my line was, was faster, she'd swing the cart over and join me. If hers was faster, she'd have me join her. Um, but not so in England. In England, they have these wonderful compound queues where people all line up, and it's very fair. You know, you get to the front, and the next available cashier will help you. Um, very orderly people. So yeah, Locke's first uh, uh, you know, response to the tyranny of Paul III is not, is not to uh, have a revolution. It's, it's that people should petition, right? They should protest. They should voice their grievances. But if after repeatedly petitioning and voicing their grievances and, and reminding Paul III what the purpose of government was in the first place, if even after that he was still tyrannical, what then does Locke say people have the right to do? Then they have the right to revolution. They have the right to overthrow their existing government and establish a new one that fulfills the purpose of government. And that purpose, of course, is protecting individual rights. So I think it's, it's pretty easy to see how Lockean liberalism fundamentally played a role in the ideas of the American Revolution. There's this other constellation of ideas that I've mentioned, um, that being classical republicanism. And you know, classical Republicans uh, existed within this rich tradition of, of ideas, um, far more than I have time to lay out. But one of the, the, the thoughts that they had that I find especially fascinating, and that I think was maybe especially on the minds of the revolutionary generation, is the notion that throughout history, a civilization, society, history, it, it, it tends to, to, to work in patterns. There's a certain circularity to it. Um, and, and throughout human existence, you can see civilizations rising and, and gaining great strength, but then deteriorating and finally collapsing over and over and over again. The Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, and so on. And, and the classical Republican thinkers posited that there is a, a certain reason for that and there is a certain pattern to that. And like John Locke, they thought that it began in the state of nature. I'm gonna show you a series of um, five paintings. They were all painted by uh, sort of the great Hudson River School artist of the early 19th century, Thomas Cole. And the, uh, the series is called The Course of Empire. And Thomas Cole's uh, first panel is the state of nature. And uh, you know, here, here we have a bunch of individuals um, who are, are, are living in, in, in nature. Uh, they have perhaps perfect freedom, but they don't have perfect security. So what do you do? Um, as we've discovered ourselves, it makes sense to kind of join up with other people um, and form alliances whereby you agree to help protect others' individual rights, and they are going to reciprocate. That is wonderful, but it does change how you live. If in the state of nature you could be a nomad, Right? I mean, in the state of nature, there's nothing tying you down, really. Uh, you could chase the, the herd of bison. You could, uh, you know, gather all the nuts and the berries in one area and then move on to the next area. Um, you know, if, if you deplete the fish population in a certain pond, you could move to another pond. 
Um, there was a certain nomadic quality that used to exist that now doesn't really work with this new civilization where we band together to protect others' individual rights. I mean, if, if, if you know, somebody is going to be there um, to protect my rights, I need to be close to them physically, right? I, I can't live far, far away. And so what do people do? They pick up the plow. They become farmers. So the next phase of civilization is the agrarian phase, or the pastoral state, as Thomas Cole described it. And in this agrarian phase, people live off the land as farmers. Now, I have to tell you, the founding generation, the American revolutionaries, had a uh, really uh, great fond uh, attitude toward farmers. It's understandable, I suppose, since so many Americans at the time were engaged in agriculture. Um, Jefferson wrote that those who labor in the earth are the chosen people of God, if ever he had a chosen people. Jefferson had to work that, that part in. Um, if ever he had a chosen people, they're the chosen people of God because farming makes them virtuous, because farming provides them with all sorts of qualities that make them especially fit to be self-governing and responsibly self-governing free individuals. So let's think about that. What are the traits of a farmer? Are farmers hardworking or lazy? You know, many people are saying hardworking. Ultimately, if so, let's imagine there's a lazy farmer. Um, if you're a lazy farmer, ultimately, what's gonna happen? Ultimately, you're gonna be dead, right? I mean, you, you will become a skinny farmer and then a starving farmer, and then you will become a dead farmer. So of course, yes, farmers are hard working. What other qualities do farmers have? Yeah, I mean, you know, this, the idea, ideally, a farmer is someone, and the farmer as Jefferson envisions him, is someone who owns his own land. And because he owns his own land and works his own land, he is his own boss. This is an incredibly important characteristic. If you are your own boss, you don't develop the, the habits of servility that Jefferson and other members of the founding generation thought undermined people in other parts of the world, especially Europe. In Europe, you have this hierarchical system where you have some, some land-owning nobles, and then you have these people who live like serfs upon the land of others. Or you, worse, have people who live in cities where they are dependent upon others for their livelihood. Not so a farmer. A farmer owns his own land, he works his own land, he is his own boss. <coughs> I teach uh, at West Point, in case this is being recorded, I'll stipulate that my opinions don't necessarily represent those of the United States government. Um, <laughs> And I have to say that, in part because I lack the independence of a farmer. I lack the independence of someone who owns the land on which he works. I lack the independence of someone who is his own boss. I'm part of a hierarchy. I, 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 when I see someone walking down the hallway, I, I'm a civilian, so I'm in just regular clothes, but I look at people in uniform and I quickly try to ascertain what is their rank. Is this a person? who I have to address as sir or ma'am? 
or is this a person who's supposed to call me sir? I mean, everybody has a place where they fit within this hierarchy. Not so, right, in the world of, of, of these independent farmers. Everybody's roughly equal. Everybody uh, is, is, is an independent landowner. Everyone is his own boss. And that develops mental traits which have profound and po positively uh, profound implications for how they act and work together as citizens. What are some other characteristics of a farmer? Self-sufficiency, I heard just quickly, right? So the idea is that a farmer can provide for his or her own basic needs and the basic needs of his or her family. There's no reason to, to be specific and say uh, that a farmer has to be a man because we know how, how it worked. I mean, you know, it was a, a, a family enterprise. Sometimes people will talk about the market revolution of the 19th century and they'll you know, wave their finger and, and say, oh, it was child labor. There was child labor during the market revolution. And, and, and as a historian, it just makes me smile um, to hear other historians say such things because I'm like, well, but hold on now. There was market, there was, you know, before the market revolution, there was plenty of child labor on the farm. It was because of the market revolution and, and the usefulness of, of you know, special um, specialization and the education that made specialization possible that, that we invent things like modern childhood and we invent things like this notion that people should spend, you know, 20% or more of their lives preparing for adulthood in school. You know, back in the, the, the world of the 18th century, um, everybody was out in the field working, right? Mom, dad, the kids. And as a, as a family unit, they were self-sufficient. They were self-reliant. There were laws uh, regarding the franchise that um, were common throughout colonial America. And many stayed on the books in many uh, states until you know, the 1820s or the 1830s. And, and they would uh, you know, designate a certain number of acres that someone had to own in order to have the franchise, in order to be able to vote. I think the rationale behind that was that if you owned a certain number of acres, then you were financially independent. You were self-sufficient. And so you could engage in government not uh, in, in a way that would um, express any sort of need on your part or avarice on your part, but instead you would in, be able to engage in, go in government um, to, to truly look out for the common good. That was the theory. I'm not endorsing it, but that was their thinking. So farmers are hardworking. They are their own boss. They're, they have independence of mind as well as independence of means. Other, other traits. What about, are they good members of, of, of a community? Would they be good neighbors? Who would you rather have, for example, as a next-door neighbor? Would you rather have a farmer as a next-door neighbor or a carny, a carnival worker? <laughs> Small hands, smell like cabbage. That's from Austin Powers, if you don't know the film. But uh, who would be a better neighbor, a farmer or a carnival worker? Raise your hand if you think a farmer would be a better neighbor. Any takers for the, for the carny? I don't, I don't see any. Um, what are some, some things about the farmer that would make the farmer a better neighbor? What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So farmers, um, they you know, produce useful things like food and, and, and such. And uh, you know, the, the, the farmer next door um, maybe has things that, that he or she can share with you. You might have things that you could share with, with him. Why would the, the farmer, do you think, be inclined to share with you? 
Yeah, maybe. I mean, so that's that's that normally um, you know is present whenever anyone engages in trade. But what about you know the proverbial stick of butter? If if you had a, a carny living next door, I don't know. I, I'd hate to see what's inside the refrigerator of a carny. Um, probably like beer and mayonnaise, right? Um, but but the refrigerator of, of the farmer uh, would there be? Uh, would he have a stick of butter? Probably so. And would the farmer? be inclined to loan you the stick of butter or give you the stick of butter. Why is that? What's that? Okay, so sure, maybe the farmer can make another one. That's right. The farmers have a long-term perspective. So someday the farmer might realize, you know what, someday I'll, yeah, I'll give him the stick of butter because someday I'm going to want a cup of sugar. I'll need a cup of sugar. And I could knock on his door and, and you know, he'll be kind of obligated to give me the cup of sugar. And that's good. That's great. So farmers have this long-term perspective. They are literally, well, not literally, but oh, their crops literally are rooted in the soil. Farmers are not fly-by-night people. I, I choose carnies for a reason. Um, not just to be funny, but I think there's something about carnies that, that, that make them a good counterexample to a farmer. And I want to stipulate, too, I have nothing against carnies. Um, I like carnies. My mom is a carny. No. No, she's not. My mother's not a carny. Um, but, but she could be. I mean, that's really against carnies, but there is something about them that makes them different than farmers. They are by nature nomadic, right? Farmers make their living going from town to town, right, with the rides and the show games and, and everything else. Um, Farmers, though, because they are rooted in a community, have a vested interest in the community. Where do you find a carny on a Saturday morning? Maybe in bed. Maybe, maybe, maybe if, you know, if the one moves in next door, maybe passed out on your lawn, surrounded by empty 40s and tall boys and cigarette butts, right? Maybe. Um, where do you find a farmer on a Saturday morning? Maybe working in the field, sure. Maybe. Maybe you find the farmer at the farmer's market. Or maybe, maybe you find the farmer behind the church or behind the school building a playground for the children, right? Because farmers have a vested interest in the community. They want their kids to have a nice playground. They want the other kids to have a nice playground. They want the kids in the community to be good and well-behaved and to have these nice advantages, right? It's their community. Um, so there are all these attributes that Jefferson and others thought made farmers particularly well-suited to be good citizens, citizens who were in, in, in capable of engaging productively in individual self-government and, when necessary, when necessary, in collective self-government as voters and office holders. And all of this work, all this hard work, all of this virtue, the word that they loved to use, all of this community spiritedness, what's the result? Does, does the, the society gain strength? Does it get richer? It gets richer. It gets more powerful. Ultimately, the next phase of empire, of, of, of civilization, is empire. Right? And if you look, uh, Cole is, is up to something kind of ingenious. He's painting the same physical landscape as it evolves over time. So let me, let me go back here. You see that mountaintop with the rock, right? There it is again, right? There it is again on the far right. So empire, 
That's the next stage of civilization. And the American revolutionaries um, thought that perhaps Great Britain had reached this stage of civilization. Now, that could be a good thing. Once you reach the, the point of empire, there was a great deal of power that the nation enjoyed. There was a great deal of comfort. There was a great deal of wealth. Certainly, you could say that Great Britain, especially after the French and Indian War, was the richest nation on the planet and the most powerful nation on the planet. And yet, sometimes we find the seeds of our own destruction in our success. Classical Republican thinkers that thought that, thought that this was a very perilous stage of civilization. Because here, we, we, we find ourselves less self-reliant, less independent, more hierarchical. It's much more rare to be your own boss. It's much more common to be part of a hierarchy, to see others as your inferiors, or I think even worse, to see others as your superiors. It's in this stage of civilization that people might begin to give into the siren song that says if you trade a little bit of your liberty for assurances of rank or status or security, that things will turn out well in the end. It's in this stage of civilization that people might begin to become corrupt. You know, back here in the agrarian phase, who might be the head of your government? Perhaps someone virtuous, self-reliant, someone who, who we exalt and hold dear, someone after whom this city is named. Maybe in this stage of civilization, the, the leader of the government will be George Washington. Who's in charge here? Caligula, right? And, 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 and here people get lazy. Here, people begin to get corrupt. Here, people begin to care less about hard work and more about ease. People here, if you know your Latin, like to spend their days hanging out on their triclinia, right? With, with ankyla delectats, bringing them panem and venum, right? It's, it's, it's glorious, and yet it leads to corruption and decay and depravity and destruction, which is the next phase of civilization. And what follows that? Desolation. Essentially, a return to the state of nature. And the process begins all over again. Well, the American revolutionaries, the revolutionary generation, in the midpoint of the 18th century, in the 1750s, none of this was on their mind, right? Americans were proud to be British, not only because Britain was rich, not only because Britain was powerful, but most of all, they were proud to be British because Britain was free. John Locke uh, developed his fame, justifying the legitimacy of the glorious revolution of 1688. Right? It's because of the glorious revolution that John Locke wrote his two treatises on government explaining 
to the English people, the English people who like to stay in line, right? The English people who, who, who are orderly, the English people who are not habitual revolutionaries, why this glorious revolution was glorious and why it was legitimate. It was legitimate because government under King James had become tyrannical. It was legitimate because, it, because government had lost its way. It has, was no longer upholding the purpose of protecting individual rights. It was legitimate to overthrow James and bring in William and Mary because William and Mary agreed to uphold individual rights. They agreed to abide the balanced British Constitution, which allowed the people to have their voice through Parliament and which put limits upon what they as king and queen could do. That's what made Britain free. That's what made that revolution glorious. And so George III, when he rose to the throne in the 1760s during the French and Indian War, George III was a hero. He was the, the living embodiment of the English commitment to liberty. They loved him in Britain. They loved him in America. Everybody loved him, with the possible exception of Dalmatians. <laughs> and no one anticipated in 1754, when the French and Indian War began, as it was known in America, the Seven Years' War elsewhere, no one anticipated that this conflict would ultimately sow the seeds of the destruction of the British Empire in what would become the United States. The uh, French and Indian War, of course, in many respects is a global war. In many respects, it's a titanic struggle between Britain and France, between two superpowers. One, England, and we were eager to fight in behalf of England. We as American colonists were eager to stand up in behalf of England against the hated French. If Britain had a balanced constitution, if Britain had a monarch devoted to liberty with limited powers, what kind of king did France have? An absolutist, right? I mean, when you start counting your Louis in the teens, you know there's a problem, right? That's, that's a pretty hardcore monarchy. And, uh, and, and also, the British uh, government, it was based on Protestantism. Now, there was a very strong anti-Catholic sentiment in the 18th century in America, as well as in Britain, which a lot of times causes us to kind of scratch our heads. I mean, I'm, I'm Catholic, and I don't really see myself as a threat to liberty. But they would disagree, in part because of the experience of France, right? When, when Louis the whatever was coronated, who was there to put the crown on his head? Right, the pope or the bishop. And, and, and he ruled according to divine Right, and, and if you challenged the king, if you challenged the state, you were also challenging the church because they were in cahoots. And, and you know, we think about um, the power of church combined with state. We oftentimes don't appreciate just how powerful it could be. I mean, the state then and now has the power to kill you. And yet back in France, when you stood, stood there on the scaffold, not only was there a government executioner there to kill you, but standing at his side, there was a priest. And his job was to tell you, you were going to hell, right? Because you had challenged the, the, the government, the king. 
who, who had been sanctified by the, by the church. And, and, and so France, by the English colonists, was thought to be really the antithesis of everything that was good, of everything that was free. It was the original evil empire. And Americans were happy to take up arms against it. We have uh, particularly good numbers for the colony of Massachusetts. And there's a great historian named Fred Anderson who has written a study of Massachusetts in the French and Indian War. Um, and he estimates that about one-third of all military-aged men in Massachusetts actually put on a uniform, left the colony of Massachusetts, and fought in behalf of the British in the French and Indian War. So we had skin in this game. And uh, you know, teaching at West Point, obviously I'm an expert in military history. Let me go into some detailed and nuanced analysis of the French and Indian War. There were red arrows. There were blue arrows. There were red explosions, and there were blue explosions, and we won. We won the French and Indian War. Hooray. Hooray for Britain. There's just a problem with this, though. War, as we've already mentioned, oftentimes sows the seeds of tyranny. War is always costly, not only in terms of lives, but also in terms of fortunes. War caused Britain's debt. The Seven Years' War caused Britain's debt to double. To double. And so if the year is 1763, and you're a member of Parliament, it is not unreasonable for you to sort of look at the balance sheet and say to yourself, you know what? It would be great if we could come up with ways to avoid future expensive wars. And it might be also great for us to come up with ways to increase our revenue. And of course, that's what politicians would, would you know, kind of their, uh, their sort of inclination. They could cut back expenditures or they could increase revenue. What would a politician want to do? Revenue, every time, right? The, the one idea that they have for cutting back on expenditures and avoiding future expensive wars is, is presented in 1763. The British uh, enact this proclamation line. The proclamation line of 1763 was this invisible line along the crest of the Appalachian Mountains from what is now Maine all the way down to Georgia. And the idea was the French, perhaps, were vanquished from North America at the end of the French and Indian War. There are no more French troops on, on the North American continent. But there were still plenty of Indian nations. And the Indian nations had been the allies of the French in the French and Indian War. It's easy to see why, by the way. The Indians were not stupid people. They understood that the French mode of colonization was very different from the English mode of colonization. When the French sent people to the New World, they generally sent uh, fur traders and Jesuit priests, right? The, the Jesuit priests. Uh, weren't going to have any kids, at least not, you know, maybe on the down low, right? But they'd be, they'd be raised as Indians. The, uh, the fur traders usually did not come as heads of families. They came as individuals. And they came for the purpose of engaging in trade with the Indians. I mean, trade, you know, for it to be trade, it has to be voluntary. 
And for it to be voluntary, it has to be mutually beneficial. So it's easy to see why the Indians, you know, enjoyed the partnership that they had with France. They received from the French things that they wanted. They gave to the French things that the French wanted. Everyone benefited. The English mode of colonization is fundamentally different. The English, what do they send? Who do they send to, to the Americas? And once you get past that first generation at Jamestown, it's, it's families who are coming to America. It's fam families who are, are you know, building these farms and clearing these fields. It's families who are causing our population, the English-speaking population of North America, to double every 20 years. From the Native American perspective, the English speakers are a plague spreading across the continent. You know, uh, siding with the French is almost a no-brainer. But now the French are gone, and the English are in charge. The English want to avoid future wars with the Native Americans. What better way to do that than to ascribe to the notion that good fences make good neighbors? This is an invisible fence, but it's a clear one. The, the English-speaking European inhabitants can live east of the proclamation line. The land to the west is reserved for Native Americans. I think it's easy for us to understand what Parliament was up to. It's easy for us to appreciate that they wanted to avoid future expensive wars. But it should also be easy for us to appreciate how outraged the American colonists were. I mean, they had skin in this game. They had gone off to help the British fight for this continent. They had gained all of this land. All of this land, which was once in dispute, is now under the British flag, all the way up to the Mississippi. And now they are told by their government that they are not allowed as free Englishmen to travel freely across English territory, to settle on land that they helped conquer, that their government, the English government, is siding with their enemy, an enemy that many of them had engaged in battle during the French and Indian War, an enemy that, that perhaps had, had burned down their house or cut down their crops, an enemy to which they had lost a father or a son or a husband or a brother or a limb. And now their government is siding with the Indians? This they thought was an outrage. And this they thought was a violation of their liberty. The purpose of government, they thought, was to protect their liberty, their liberty to move about freely within their nation. And now that liberty was being questioned. And things got worse again. When again, in 1765, the British come up with the Stamp Act. If the proclamation line was designed to try to uh, avoid future expensive wars, the Stamp Act was designed to increase revenue to help pay for that expensive war, which had just been fought and won by the British and the Americans. And I have to tell you, it's almost as if the British had gone to Barnes & Noble um, and you know, they'd gone to the self-help section and they found a book called How to Lose an Empire for Dummies. <laughs> Be because, I mean, they really are, at least in hindsight, it's clear that they're making a lot of mistakes here. One mistake that they make uh, early on, this must have been in the preface of How to Lose an Empire for, for Dummies, um, when a young militia colonel named George Washington says that it's his greatest wish to be allowed to buy a commission as, a, as an officer in the regular British army, what do you tell him? No, 
No, George, because you're not British enough. What a mistake. What a mistake. And again, you know, the proclamation line outrages people who live in the back country. The Stamp Act seems custom-made to unify in outrage all of the people who live along the coast. The Stamp Act, it's, it's difficult to imagine a more onerous and odious seeming tax. It was obnoxious for a bunch of different reasons, the chief of which, as the colonists so frequently said, was that it represented taxation without representation. The, the, the Stamp Act was passed by Parliament, and its avowed aim was to raise revenue from the colonists. Now, the colonists had their own parliaments. Ever since 1619 in Virginia, Virginians had had the House of Burgesses. In the other colonies, there were representative assemblies. They, they recognized the rights of, of, or the powers of those assemblies to tax them, but not the parliament. Parliament could control trade and the empire, but it, it couldn't control their internal affairs. And it certainly couldn't take money out of their pocket without asking. I mean, I know we live in morally complicated times, but what do you call it? When somebody reaches into your pocket and takes money without asking. <laughs> I, love, I love Cato. You know, any other place, people would say stealing, right? Here, here people say taxation. Um, I get it. I'm with you. But yes, they saw it as theft. They saw it as stealing. The government is stealing from them. The government's job is not to steal from them. The government's rightful job is to protect them against people who would steal from them. The government's job is to protect their property rights, not to violate their property rights. So here is the British government, their government, with the proclamation line restricting their liberty, with the Stamp Act threatening their property. What's going on? You know, so, so Americans um, who had to pay the stamp tax. And gosh, again, the British, they couldn't have designed it better to, to galvanize a diverse set of constituencies, especially when you think about it in terms of occupational constituencies. The stamp, right, here's a picture of one, was this physical thing that was affixed to uh, paper products of various sorts. And I mean, if, if you're really trying to lose an empire, um, what are some occupational groups that you would want to alienate? Lawyers. Lawyers. So lawyers, then and now, are, are overrepresented in houses of assembly, right? So let's, let's tick off the lawyers by mandating that the stamp has to be affixed to all legal documents. What that means is, if you're a lawyer, now you have to deal with this, this stamp tax. And you, know, you pay for the stamp, so it, it becomes more expensive to do business which means that you'll probably do less business. And even the business that you do do, now you have to, to figure out like how many stamps have I collected and paid for and I have to keep records of this and report it to the government and you know, what a, what a mess. What other occupational constituencies? Uh, if you were right-minded, would you not want to alienate but the British seemed intent on? Who else? Printers. The press, right? Let's mandate that the stamp has to be on newspapers. What other constituencies? Occupational constituencies. Who's that? Bankers. Yeah, bankers to the extent that they degreed. I mean, they dealt with, with, with lots of paper products and lots of legal contracts. Um, who's, which occupational constituency is very important on a Sunday morning? The clergy. Even Bibles had to bear the stamp. 
You know, merchants sell lots of paper products. Um, the British are very polite. Um, professors aren't really that important, but they want to be polite and make them feel important. So uh, even college diplomas will have to bear the stamp. So the college professors feel included in this outrage as well. And then finally, the drunken mob. So packages of playing cards and dice had to bear the stamp. And all of this was enough to cause the American colonists, who previously had very, been, very much been proud of their identity as New Yorkers or Pennsylvanians or Virginians or, or, or people from Massachusetts, to come together as Americans in opposition to the stamp tax. They protested. They petitioned. They boycotted goods that bore the stamp. They refused to collect the taxes. They targeted for, for social condemnation, uh, for uh, you know, symbolic uh, destruction of effigies, stamp tax collectors. Some stamp tax collectors were themselves tarred and feathered. And, and, and all of this, all of this resulted in what? I mean, if you were the British government, if you were working out of this handbook, How to Lose an Empire for Dummies, how would you respond to, from a British perspective, this is very bad behavior. You wouldn't want to encourage it. So what will the British do in response? Do they come down hard early on and establish that they're not going to take this sort of thing from the colonists? Or do they give in? and condition the colonists to think that this is how they behave whenever the British Parliament passes a law that they don't like. I remember a few years ago potty training my daughter. You know, if she was good, do we give her a lollipop or make her stand in the corner? If she's good, you give her a lollipop, right? Have we been good? Do we deserve a lollipop, or should the British government make a stand in the corner if their job is to discourage this sort of behavior in the future? You'd think they'd have a stand in the corner, but what do they do? They give us a lollipop. They repeal the Stamp Act. So we learn a valuable lesson. If, if we don't like a law that they pass, we are going to stand up and resist it. And that is what we do, not only with our resistance to the Stamp Act, but also with our resistance to another set of laws passed in 1767, these called the Townsend Duties. These were a series of taxes on lead, glass, paint, paper, and tea. Again, it's taxation without representation. In addition, what makes this even worse is that a lot of the money that's being raised by the Townsend Duties will go to fund directly the salaries of royal officials in North America. Now, our royal governors, for example, it used to be that the British Parliament didn't directly pay them. Instead, who directly paid the royal governors? The American legislatures. When the legislature paid the governor, the legislature had a great deal of power and leverage over the governor. Now that would be lost. The, 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 the governor would be bought off, corrupted by the British government. The Townsend duties were something that we uh, protested and petitioned against. We boycotted the products that were taxed. We essentially went by the same script that we did when we resisted the Stamp Act. And the British essentially did the same exact thing. Here we go making a big mess on the imperial carpet. And what do we get? Do we stand in the corner? Or do we get another lollipop? We get a lollipop. The British repeal the, the Townsend duties. They repeal the Townsend duties on March 5th, 1770, a day that they hope 
will live long in our memory as a great day of Anglo-American friendship. And yet, instead, we remember that day for a different reason. We remember that day because there was a poor British soldier. British soldiers had been in Boston since 1768. Probably another mistake the British had made. The soldiers had, had been there. It's not like Boston was menaced by the French army. It's not like Native Americans were, um, you know, surrounding Boston, poised to attack. The British were there for one reason and one reason only. What was it? Yeah, to intimidate the population of Britain and enforce those tax, tax laws. I mean, and, and, and again, this is a violation of the English Bill of Rights, they think. Their parliament, their state, you know, soon-to-be state assembly, had not approved of or sanctioned this, this standing army among them. They felt like they were no longer being treated as English people. They were being treated like an occupied, alien, foreign people. They resented these troops. They resented them to a great degree. They resented them not only because of the fact that they were there, they resented them for practical reasons too. Um, the British were pretty poorly led, I think. And I also have to say they were very poorly paid, their soldiers. And so a lot of these guys would moonlight. They would work odd jobs. So when the British soldiers arrived, um, not only did you know, these redcoats show up, and that's annoying enough, but if you're a laborer in Boston, the labor market changed. The arrival of these soldiers meant the arrival of a lot more laborers, which meant that given the laws of supply and demand, wages went down. So there was a great deal of resentment. Um, on March 3rd, 1770, it was a Saturday night, there were a group of British soldiers who were off duty, walking around Boston. They encountered a group of locals. One of the men, and I'll clean up this quote just a little bit, one of the men, one of the Bostonians, shouted out to the soldiers, hey, any of you guys need a job? One of the soldiers turned around and said, yeah, yeah, I could use some work. And I get, this is the part I'm cleaning up. The soldier said, or the Bostonian said, clean my outhouse. And that led to this big fight, this big street brawl. So tensions couldn't have been higher on Saturday, March 3rd. Sunday, March 4th, people go to church. Monday, March 5th, 1770, the same day that the Townsend Acts, unbeknownst to anyone in Boston, have been repealed. And there is a British soldier, a British sentry, who is standing in front of the biggest target in all of Boston, that being the Customs House, where the tax collectors work. And it's, it's a cold night. And there are these kids, these obnoxious little kids, who are pelting him first with snowballs, and then with sticks, and then with stones, and then with words that hurt him. And he called for reinforcements. And now there's a line of British soldiers with their back against the wall of the customs house, with their bayonets fixed. And, and, and the crowd grows. It's not just kids anymore. It's adults. And it's increasingly rowdy and incre increasingly loud. And then on this Monday night, a strange thing happens. And we don't know who orchestrates this or exactly why, but all of the church bells in Boston start to ring. Now, on a Monday night, when all of the church bells start to ring, what is that a sign of? What's that a signal of? Some, some public emergency, right? And, and, and in a wooden city of the 18th century, what's the most frightful public emergency? 
a fire. So people start leaving their houses with buckets of water. And, and the crowd grows as people descend upon the customs house in the middle of Boston. And, and, and there's pandemonium. People are throwing things, and there's this mob, and the bayonets are fixed. And if you're in the front of the mob, you don't want your chest to go into the bayonet, so you push back. But if you're in the back of the crowd and you feel the, the, the crowd pushing back, you, you push forward, and it's like this revolutionary mosh pit. And, and there's stuff being thrown through the air, and it's dark, and it's cold, and it's loud, and the bells are ringing. And the bells could be a, a, a sign of what? Fire, someone yells. And one of the soldiers does. And then all the other soldiers fire their guns. And then there are 11 bloody bodies on the ground. That's the Boston Massacre. It's really the Boston misunderstanding. But it's portrayed as a massacre by Paul Revere and others. Paul Revere is not only a silversmith, he's an amateur artist. And he draws this cartoon to illustrate to the people in the other colonies the, the, the British tyranny that was being inflicted upon the people of Boston. Here, it's not some person in the crowd yelling fire. Here, it's the British captain, right? Here, it's not the, the British sentries with their backs against the wall. Here, the crowd has its back against the wall. Colonists thought that the British government now was not only injuring their liberty, not only taking their property, it was now taking their lives. All of the things the government is supposed to do, the British government was now working against. Things continued to heat up in December of 1773. You have the Boston Tea Party. They throw this tax tea overboard. Now, previously, whenever the colonists had done something bad like this, the British government had responded in the most ingratiating sort of way. Here's a lollipop. We'll repeal the, the offensive law. But this time, Right? They say consistency is, is the number one quality of good parenting. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what they say, whoever they are. Well, they would not like this, because what did the British do? They're very inconsistent here. Do they give the colonists a lollipop after the Boston Tea Party? Or do they make them stand in the corner? They give them the, uh, the equivalent of uh, a Walmart beating. You go into Walmart, you see parents get so frustrated in Walmart, wailing on their, on their kids. The British just lose it. They lose it. They pass what they call the coercive acts, what we call the intolerable acts. They shut down Boston Harbor. They, they, they close down the Massachusetts Assembly. They bar even local town meetings from taking place until the value of the destroyed tea is, is, is repaid. When, when, when people hear of this, when people in other colonies hear of this, they're outraged. If the British can respond like this to the people of Massachusetts, I mean, again, remember, right? In our system, we don't have group punishment. In our system, if someone destroys something, they are found. They, as individuals, are charged. They are held accountable. We don't punish entire cities. We don't punish entire states. But here are the British punishing an entire colony. Americans began to say that the British had abdicated their role as a government. They weren't protecting life, liberty, and property anymore. We are in a state of nature, said Patrick Henry. We don't have a government that is protecting our rights. We have the, a government that is a barbarian. The government is the barbarian. It has become Mark, right, with a club. It's, it's clear what needs to happen. 
And if it wasn't in 1774, it became even clearer in 1775, when the British marched out in April to take away the guns that had been stored and the ammunition that had been stored um, in, in Concord, Massachusetts. Um, there we have in Lexington the shot that heard round the world, the beginning of the war for independence, when, when people who had previously been, been proud Britons, proud to say that they were British, because Britain was a nation that upheld and defended their rights. Now these people are rising up against that government along the, uh, the long 17-mile march back to Boston after the British had been turned back at the Old North Bridge. They found, you know, like swarms of bees descending upon the road, uh, militia units from other neighboring communities, as well as local farmers in, in, in the, uh, the town of Monotomy, Massachusetts, in modern-day Arlington. They, they were passing by the house of an 80-year-old man who had twice put on a uniform and fought with the British, a man named Samuel Wedemore. This day, he was going to fight against the British. He was behind his stone fence, and he had his musket. He also had loaded two pistols, as well as a sword, a sword that he had taken from the body of a French officer that he had slain in the Seven Years' War. He was an old guy even then, and he's an old guy now, but he is fired up with the desire to defend his liberty. He sees the British marching down the road. He loads his musket. He aims. He fires. Down comes one redcoat. He reloads. He fires again. Down goes another redcoat. The redcoats see this poof of white hair behind the stone fence. They, they send a detachment of guys to go take him out. They, they, they jump over the fence. They start stabbing him with, the, with their bayonets while he fires his pistols and flails about with his sword. How many times would you guess they stab him? It's a great number, if, if, you know, especially when you consider the American colonies. 13 times. They stab him 13 times, and they shoot him in the face, and they leave him for dead. But guess what? <laughs> he doesn't die. Samuel Wedmore lives. He lives another 18 years to die a 98-year-old citizen of a free and independent United States of America. Anyway, thank you very much. So I think we have uh, a few minutes for, for, for questions. Hi, uh, Josh Frenzik. I'm with the Cato Institute. Uh, and I, I was wondering, in regards to Native Americans, uh, they, they didn't necessarily own land. We always hear they didn't have the concept of owning land. Uh, did colonists have the view that they lived in the state of nature, and because they didn't mix their labor in the same way, that they could take their land? Or where did scholars kind of that would be libertarians <coughs> now where would they have fallen on that, uh, on that expansion past the proclamation? Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I, I, they say that an expert is someone who knows more and more about less and less. And I, I think that's certainly true in the American historical profession. My, my knowledge of, of Native American history is, is broad and superficial. I, I, I really am skeptical, though, of people who make the claim that Native Americans didn't understand property. It may be the case that given their environment, they understood it in different ways. But 
they understood property. You know, for example, uh, we were just on this great family vacation. We were out in Southern Colorado at Mesa Verde. If anyone has ever been to Mesa Verde, you see these incredible, uh, sophisticated, um, you know, circa 1300 cliff dwellings where these Native Americans, you know, essentially talk about a city on a hill. I mean, this is a city on a cliff. And uh, you don't invest that sort of labor into building something unless you believe that you're gonna have the exclusive use of this or the ability to allow use of this. Um, you know, maybe you were a nomadic Indian tribe and you followed a herd and you were not, you know, in one set location, but you would still have this broad notion, um, maybe not uncontested, but a broad notion that, that there were certain things that were yours and that this land that, that you know, you, you ranged on throughout the year was your property. Um, it's easy to see, though, why Native Americans and English settlers would, would come into conflict. Because frequently, oftentimes, they, they had competing notions and claims to property. And I think, you know, it's understandable that people like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, who in relative terms were fairly enlightened and friendly toward Native Americans, their dream was that Native Americans would essentially assimilate with uh, the United States, that Native Americans would marry Americans, that they would pick up the plow, that they would become farmers, um, just like others within the United States. Um, it's not a surprise, perhaps, that as you get farther into the 19th century, and as Americans get farther into the West, and you encounter not Eastern woodland tribes, but instead the, the more nomadic tribes of the Great Plains, that things get even more violent, um, and, and that's because, you know, you can't have uh, Indians chasing a bunch of bison across your cornfield, right? I mean, these two modes of, of production, they can't peacefully coexist. So I, I think that's one of the things, at, at least, that's at the heart of the, the, the tragedy that is, you know, relations between Native Americans and European settlers. Thank you. I don't know if that answers your question, but I hope it addresses it. Yes. Do you think that U.S. independence from Britain was inevitable? Or if Britain had played their cards differently, could the U.S. have stayed significantly longer as part of their empire? It's so hard to say. I mean, you know, it, it, you ask a, a wonderfully fascinating and interesting and classically counterfactual question. So no one knows. Um, but I suppose you could speculate, um, and some of the members of the Revolutionary Generation did speculate, that if, if Britain uh, didn't alienate us, and indeed, if we did secure representation, um, that the story would not so, so much be that we would remain under the thumb of Britain, but given the fact that America's population was doubling every 20 years, given the fact that America's relative economic might was increasing dramatically over time, um, that if we ever had representation, it would not be that we would remain under the thumb of Great Britain, it would, that great, would be that Great Britain, the people on the other side of the Atlantic, would fall under the thumb of the, the Americans. Um, but it never really was a serious viable proposal um, that we would have real representation in Parliament, in part because given the, the transportation of the day, the technology of the day, you just, it's just not practical. You're, you're just too far away to really be representative of the, of the people who elected you. But, but great question. Thank you. Uh, Jim Huddle from Charlotte. Uh, 
how much was the stamp tax itself? I saw it was so many shillings. Was that a big number, a small number? Yeah, how, I, I, how that? you know, again, this is a question that I find difficult to answer in part because, uh, well, anyway, anytime you get into old-fashioned British money, it's a totally different system. But there's also the problem of, of, of trying to understand the relative value of money back then. Um, one thing I can tell you, and I wish I could remember the source where I read this, um, but I, I do remember reading it, our tax burden is uh, much greater than what theirs was under these British taxes, taxes that they really never paid because you know they boycotted them, they resisted them. I think the number that I read was um, they paid about, to, you know, they were supposed to be paying about 7% to the British Empire, 7% of what we currently pay to the federal government. So relative, in relative terms, they had a very light tax burden, but that, you know, they thought, um, you know, in practical terms and also in terms of principle was, was too much than they were willing to pay. One quick comment. I think in North Carolina they had something they call the war of the regulation prior to that. And I right. think I, I got the impression that part of the issue was the, uh, there wasn't a lot of species, a lot of coins or bills. And so when it came to collecting it, that, that it was almost a difficulty. Is that's, that's right. So a, a number of uh, taxes and rebellions uh, to taxes were because there were requirements that taxes had to be paid in, in currency, hard currency oftentimes. Um, and that just wasn't commonly available, especially when you get into the backcountry where there's much more of a barter sort of economy. So it would hit them especially hard. Yes. Um, can you just talk about Canada's relationship with Britain and why didn't uh, why they didn't sort of join the thirteen colonies in the fight for independence? Yeah, I'd say My Canada's question. relationship with Britain. I'd I'd use two words to characterize it: polite and friendly. <laughs> no, but seriously, I I think that's fair enough. I mean, I don't know what it is about the wonderful Canadians, our 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 plaid wearing, uh, fur hatted neighbors to the north. We've been trying to liberate them ever since the 1770s, and uh, and 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 yet they resist. And uh, you know, we try again in the War of 1812, and and once again they resist our attempt to liberate them. And uh, I think I think the Canadians, um, especially the Francophones, who who live who you know were essentially the the legatees of the French presence in uh, Canada prior to the French and Indian War, they were quite pleased with the deal um, that they had received from the British Empire. Um, the Francophones were allowed to keep their language. The Catholic religion was tolerated. The, the traditional French system of laws uh, was, was, was upheld. So the British were, were really um, great masters of, of the French population and quite conciliatory toward them. Um, I think they, they wisely understood that if these English people who lived to their south, these very numerous English people who lived to their south, were to gain the upper hand, that the deal they would receive would perhaps be much less uh, uh, livable and, and much less you know, to their liking. So I think that's probably a big part of it. Thanks. Yeah, and one, we're done? So let's talk, let's talk after, I appreciate it. Thank you very much.